I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're talking to Carl Loco, the venture capitalist and founder and chairman of Black Seed, which finances black entrepreneurs. It's raised £5 million for its first fund and aims to back 30 black-led startups over the next three years. But Carl grew up running a gang in Brixton. He was top boy on his estate and he has a scar on his face where he was stabbed and had been at numerous shootouts when he was young. I could literally see the colour of the air change. They approached the vehicle and then there was an exchange of words and then a firearm began to discharge repeatedly. The shooter ran back to where me and my friends were playing, ran past us as we were frozen in time and literally took a brick from the wall, put the firearm there, put the brick back and told me to pass him the football. He just had an extraordinary life in Brixton, didn't he, as a child? Very, very happy, loving, caring parents, but really violent and dangerous childhood outside his doorstep. And what's extraordinary is he then escaped that. He left the gang culture, but he now sees himself as both a missionary and a mercenary, as he talks about it. So he does want to make money from his business, but he also wants to help other people and almost save other people in the way that he kind of rescued himself. I went uptown on a mercenary level to get resources to bring downtown. Left my estate, left my borough in a bid to get resources because we needed it. We all have more in common than difference. My suspicion, you know, was that they had webbed feet, that when you cut them, they bleed green. These are alien entities. I went there and met people that were scared, (laughs) met people that had hope, met people that wanted to be loved, met people that gave love. It's human everywhere. He seems as if he was very fearful in some ways, but you wouldn't have got that because he's six foot five. Everyone was obviously terrified of him. He was very clever at school, but actually he was focused on creating this gang from the age of 13 and of really controlling quite a lot of the streets. And and that came from one or two moments when he was even younger, when he saw really extraordinary violence and it seems to have turned his life around. Yeah, the tipping point for him was when he saw someone being shocked when he was just 12. And that kind of led to this spiralling where he 
wanted to protect himself from this very violent world. And what's interesting is he knows, because he did manage to turn his life around, that it is possible to turn your life around, even if you're in a gang, mm. you're involved in knife crime. And he worries that we're writing too many of these children mm. off. We exist, we're just a part of the hidden alumni. Okay. Hidden alumni could be pregnant as at 15, pulled herself by the bootstraps, went, finished education, cracked on and got a decent job in the city. And now the test actually say, even though she might be on the same floor as her counterpart, she's had to climb the north face of the mountain. Mm. And I've been an adventurer, I've climbed mountains. When someone else climbed the north face of the mountain, I'm at the summit where we clap for them. What's extraordinary as well, isn't it, is that the sense that the only way he could protect himself was to set up a gang rather than to get out or to find a way through education. There wasn't a way through education that he could see, but he was obviously incredibly adept and clever. And the only way to do it was almost like replicate what he'd seen when he was 12 and become a gang. And he talks about how the gangs are actually incredible mm. entrepreneurs. And he describes this network of hidden alumni who are people who've grown up in really tough backgrounds like his and then are all over the place succeeding. He was at Prince Harry and Meghan's wedding. He's in the kind of establishment. He goes to Mayfair to talk to the hedge funds, but he never really forgets mm. his roots. So he's living in these two worlds. All the fact that he saw one of his best friends die after a stabbing. So that, that must always go with you throughout your life. So tell us about Black Seed. It's a venture capital firm for black entrepreneurs. Why did you set that up? Do you know what? Um, black Seed was actually a response. I've had a bit of an interesting journey. And during my social commute, you know, I realised that the main differentiator as to who would succeed and wouldn't succeed in terms of business or who would scale and wouldn't scale was those that had economic enablement. Fast forward, my now co-founder reached out to me a week's eve of George Floyd's online execution, actually, and he wanted to raise capital. He had pitched to over 150 venture capitalists, taken part in the country's top accelerator programs, you know, and was able to, wasn't able to raise a penny, Gosh. you know. So he reached out to me and then I made some warm introductions of which enabled him to get seeded. And then when George Floyd did pass, it was a moment in time where it was like, you know what, we've just moved it on the micro. Maybe we should move it on the macro. Yeah. And then that was the essence of Black Seed. Yeah. And do you think that traditional venture capital companies are racist or do you think they're just totally unimaginative? Mm. You know, the, the R word is thrown around a fair bit. And I would say venture itself is quite a new creation, a new vehicle one of which we have over-indexed, you know, on a type of entrepreneur. The world is filled with diversity. And I always see it as, a, let's say, a, a woodland, a forest. You know, it has its biodiversity, it's essential. Every species relies on the other. However, man-made grooves in the grass, a beaten path, you know, people continue to beat it. And then before you know it, it's an easier path to journey. It seems like the obvious path to take. However, ultimately what it's doing to the environment is actually hindering it, mm. you know? And I would say that 
there isn't a great amount of proximity. It's a closed community and it's almost a like for like. The croc mind is in play. There are automatic assumptions, some of which at its essence is discrimination. And as a result, we just have a dire situation where there's not really any funding inclusion, mm. you know, unless you are an Oxbridge graduate, a white man, come from a particular socioeconomic situation, the door tends to not open mm. to you. Because yeah. there is an extraordinary figure that I think it's less than 1% of venture capital investment in the last decade went to black startups, black entrepreneurs. Why is that? I mean, it's really south from 1%. Okay. It's 0.24%. Oh, right. Over 10 of, years. Over the last oh decade, um, okay. of venture allocation went towards black founders. Okay. Um, 0.024% went towards black women. And zero point anything just means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so nothing has actually gone in that direction. So why is that? Why is that? Again, this beaten path... In terms of where the allocation has gone, it has enabled white men from a particular socioeconomic mm. situation to thrive, you know? And now the catalogue of conviction in terms of what the face of entrepreneurship looks like, you know, is a white man, you know? Mm. So again, it's just perpetuating that because ultimately people want to put their money in a direction where it's going to bring a return. Mm. You know, so now it seems like that is what is the viable kind of like um, individual or tilt to back, but it's not it's not the case. How do they then explain away that discrimination mm. when when if, if a black guy comes or a woman and yeah. asks for money? How do they explain yeah. that away? I mean, it can. <laughs> um, good question. So, I would say that. In some cases, the divide is so deep that some allocators that I've spoken to in the ecosystem haven't even received a pitch from black, a black person. Right. You know, I mean, they are the absolute minority, but they exist, you know, so that's just a kind of like a, a nod at the distance. In terms of how they might politely say, this isn't for us, is by saying ultimately this isn't for us, <laughs> you know? And um, it actually makes sense in the venture um, space because there are some that, you know, have a particular specialization. You know, they might say, you know what, we weren't able to get conviction at an IC level. You know, you What's can an always, IC level? Uh, sorry, an IC is an um, investment committee. Okay. You know, so they don't actually have to take the you know, they can say, oh, yeah, we did socialise so it with the IC. Yeah. And it just, mm. yeah, it just wasn't quite a right fit. But you'd have thought economically it makes yeah. sense. If you're serving a diverse population, you need to have a diverse range of founders. Absolutely. I mean, this is our argument, ultimately. Biodiversity in itself and diversity in general is what ensures life. Mm-hmm. Without it, beautiful reefs can become lifeless rocks. And... From, from a particular angle, that is what we're seeing today. Mm. You know, it's just that we don't know what the beautiful reef actually looks like because we're at the lifeless rock and have been there for so long. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we need to introduce more. Mm. You know, and are you doing it to sort of make money or to change the world? Is it altruistic or both? Uh, both. Mm. You know, I've been very, very grateful 
for the happenstance and this sequence of events that has led me to actually found Black Seed because it's the only time in my life I've been able to be equal parts missionary and mercenary. You know, <laughs> I, I quite that enjoy dream. that. Yeah. Great phrase. You know, mm. I spent the last 10 years advocating and campaigning for a more fair and more inclusive business ecosystem. You know, I did that with a few hats and it, it was brilliant. But I mean, ultimately, I need to take care of my family, my community, and the rest of it. So yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it. Mm. So will you have any white or Asian founders who you support, or will it be entirely black? Part of our investment criteria is that one of the founding team needs to self-identify as black. Okay. So I mean, if it's a three-way foundership and 33% of the team says, yeah, I identify as black, and then the others are white, Asian, doesn't matter. And you're based in Brixton. Do you feel in a way you're going back full circle to your childhood? Do you know what? Brixton, mind you, I do have a bias. You know, (laughs) I'm a Brixton boy born and bred. And it is nice. However, it's a lot more than the fact that it's nice. Brixton is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse area in London. London being the most diverse in the UK, the UK being the most diverse in Europe. It also has huge Afro-Caribbean ley lines. I mean, it felt fitting that we are based in Brixton and ultimately a lot of our counterparts are based in Mayfair and it's about 12 minutes on the Victoria line. So (laughs) we're good for it. (laughs) Fascinating. We want to take you back to your childhood growing up in Brixton. What are your earliest memories? What was your home like? What was your family life like? You know, I came from, and I've always stated this, I came from a super loving home. I mean, we would dance on a Saturday morning to Cotton Eye Joe till we were dizzy. My parents affirmed me constantly at every turn. It was quite idyllic, except for the fact that we didn't have much money, you know? But I mean, I didn't feel that. My parents worked, my mother was actually working 14 hour days. You know, my dad 12 hour days and they made ends meet for us, you know? So, you know, I had a brilliant childhood in terms of home life. It was when I stepped outside the house where things would get a bit complicated. It was nuanced, mm-hmm. yeah. And your parents were gone in and yes. they'd come over to England. Mm-hmm. What were they expecting and were they disappointed? I mean, Hollywood had told them, you know, indirectly that the West is salvation, mm-hmm. you know? So it was the London American dream, you know, hopes of more, of which, if I'm going to be honest, my parents encountered a lot of hostilities, but that being said, they wasn't overall disappointed. They did it for posterity. You know, they wanted their children to have a better chance and they've been able to achieve that, you know? So, I mean, to this day, if you were to ask them, would they do it again? Pretty sure they will say yes, Mm. yeah. And your dad was a security guard and your mum was a nurse. They must have worked incredibly hard. Did you become very independent as a child? Do you know what, yes. Uh, Me and my older brother, actually, four years apart. By default, you know, when you have parents that are clocking in and clocking out, you know, for the bulk of the day, you tend to have to pull your own cereal, get yourself ready for school Mm. and do the rest of it. So we got quite used to that. And it also enabled us to understand that 
I knew that they wanted to spend time with us. It wasn't like they were trying, it was an escapism, you know? They weren't trying to escape the clutches, you know, of having <laughs> kids, you know? I it was all for you. It mm. was all for us, you know? So it just kind of put that, the importance of work, its significance, yeah. you know, definitely deep within me and my older brother. And when they stepped out of the door, did they encounter racism? Absolutely. Implicitly, explicitly, for sure. Mm. Not necessarily the kind of like generic sort of racism either. You know, sometimes it could be a lot more subtle, but that was an everyday occurrence. And as a result, they would switch the code every time they left the front door. They would switch the code sometimes from inside the home. You know, if the phone rang and it was someone indigenous from the UK on the other end, I could tell because they'll put on their best. You know, I have a passport, don't kick me out. <laughs> so, so when you say switch, switch yeah. the code, you mean change the yeah, way Yeah, code switching, yeah, oh, absolutely, okay. absolutely. So how did that racism manifest itself? And did you also experience that growing up? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, um, there was at times particular slurs. So if, I don't know, there was a disagreement, you know, maybe I don't know in a supermarket or on, on, on the road in my father's car, which was rare, but when it did arise, there might be a reference to the fact of my father's origins or the rest of it, you know, so yeah, it, mm. it, it was apparent mm. for sure. And was money very tight? Were you constantly having to budget? Can you remember as a child not having things? Do you know what? My parents shielded us from that incredibly. The only time where their defences wasn't actually, um, I don't know, it was enough. I don't want to say they did more than enough, but there was one time when we were, I was 12 years old and my mother and father sat me down and actually said, um, this year Christmas won't look the same, right. you know? Um, and they had that frank conversation with us and I was like, I totally get it. And I was like, all I ask is, um, can we not put up the Christmas tree, you know? Because it's got connotations of gifts, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, no Christmas tree. And then that was the same year I evicted Turkey too. You know, I wasn't a fan, I thought it was quite dry, yeah. you know? So, <laughs> so since that year, it was either chicken or duck, literally since that year. And we've kept that tradition going actually. But also your brother, Andrew, yeah. didn't come over to join the family until you were four, did yeah. he? And yeah. do you remember trying to save up to raise the money yeah. to, for his airline ticket from Ghana? Yeah, what for happened? sure. So my father came over first with only the clothes on his back and he worked to be able to afford to get my mother over. She actually came over. Um, they had me and my brother, she had already had my older brother, you know? And it was this constant longing. You know, we just knew we wasn't a complete family. Did he stay with the grandparents? You know? Yeah. Mm. And we just knew it wasn't complete, you know? So there wasn't actually like, there couldn't be a family moment where there wasn't a tint of guilt. Mm -hmm. Like I kept on asking. You know, where is Andrew? And I was like, I want my older brother, as you can imagine, you know? So um, my mother actually got me involved and she was like, listen, we're actively working on bringing him over. So literally I, w I said, I want to help. And my mother told me, yeah, I mean, it takes money to bring him over. So then anytime I would go past a penny, I'd pick it up, you know, literally mm -hmm. anytime. And then I'd put it in a jar before you knew it, like, I mean, I know the jar didn't help, but my mum led me to believe it was helping. Yeah. So, you know, I was diligently kind of like, I wouldn't walk with my head up, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm walking with it down, you know, so yeah. Can you remember the day he came over? No, 
not the exact day, you know, I can't. I've, I, I remember the week and I remember it being, it, it being actually quite awkward. Yeah, because of family dynamics. Yeah, changed. I had, mm. you know, been anticipating this moment for so long. So had my parents mm. and, and so had he, I'm guessing. But the romance we had kind of depicted in our mind, it didn't quite play out that way. But I mean, after a week or so, we got into the groove of it. And I'm pretty sure maybe I, it's, it was so awkward where I've kind of like locked it up mentally. Mm. You know, um, it was a bit of a shock. Mm. I love my brother. We've got a great relationship. Hmm. And yeah, no, I mean, we're better for it. And did that sort of um, search for money lead you to become quite entrepreneurial as a child? The first ever business I embarked on was a dog walking company. <laughs> you know, I was... How old uh, you? I was about 11. Actually, yeah. <laughs> How many did you have? Maybe about 10, 11. And literally there was an English Bull Terrier and a Labrador in Kennington Park, actually. So we didn't live too far from Kennington Park. And I would go there anyway, because I just love and loved animals. You know, I was obsessed and still am obsessed with dogs, <laughs> you know? So I would literally go just so that I could play with the dogs for my own utility. And then I see everyone just sat in the park and sometimes like going around, it's a bit monotonous and they're chatting with some of their friends, you know? And I was like, oh, I can walk the dog around for you. You know, I just wanted to know what it felt like to walk with a dog on a lead, <laughs> you know? And then one of them said, yeah. And then I walked him around and then I brought him back and then he just gave me a fiver. And I was like, oh. Better than, better than the pennies on the ground. You know? yeah. I was like, oh. So then now I'm actively going around and socialising the proposition with the others. And were you very hardworking at school? Or were you quite naughty? Oh, good question. School came easy to me. I was always in the top set for every class. And as a result, I enjoyed it. Mm. You know, because I was excelling at it. I was second to none when it came to regurgitating information. You know, I mean, I, you ha I had no rivals, you know, mm -hmm. so much so that I actually sat my year nine SATs in year six, going to maths competitions, having to stay behind after school for further maths and further science because the school day wasn't challenging, mm -hmm. you know, so I would like to say I worked hard, but not came quite naturally, mm -hmm. you know, and actually as a result of it coming quite naturally, in class, I don't think I worked really hard, mm. you know? So, yeah, no, so I, I mean, the answer to that question is, I was always getting into a bit of trouble, actually, but mainly because of boredom. Um, I would finish my work and then maybe begin to disrupt the others. <laughs> you know, that was always my, my MO, you know? I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. I just wanted slight stimulation. Mm. <laughs> and then when you were 12, you witnessed a shooting. What happened? Can you describe what you saw? Yeah, so I mean, me and my friends were playing football where it says no ball games allowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> with our makeshift goalposts, you know, just our jumpers in place. And there were some young men that was about maybe just about five, six years, maybe at most seven years older than us. Mm. And they were hanging around loitering, just chilling. And they were smoking something. 
back then that looked like my dad's cigarettes but didn't smell like it you know? <laughs> so but they were pretty cool whenever our ball would roll over to their section they would just kick the ball back over to us and we would just carry on with our game so there wasn't really a you know there was no real mm, there's significance. no tension no no mm. tension once mm. whatsoever mm. and um a jeep actually ended up pulling into the area and i could literally see the color of the air change you know um they approached the vehicle and then there was an exchange of words and then a firearm began to discharge repeatedly the car then swerved hit a pole mounted in the air actually front two wheels everyone that was in the vehicle was obviously trying to scurry for their lives and then the shooter and his kind of like associates they all ran in different directions. The shooter ran back to where me and my friends were playing, ran past us as we were frozen in time and literally took a brick from the wall, put the firearm there, put the brick back and told me to pass him the football. <gasps> yeah, so I passed him the football. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we actually played football. He continued playing footy with us until the police came and went. And what did you say to the police? Nothing. I mean, he literally called the police over. Yeah. What, so he was almost using you as his cover? Literally, you know, and that was extremely traumatic for us. Mm. I can remember being petrified. I mean, petrified is not the word for it. And what happened to the people who were shot? I mean, in all honesty, as soon as he departed, I did the same. We had, we were basically captured audience for about Mm. almost close to about 10 minutes. I didn't realise it because I've always said it was traumatic but romantic at the same time. And now that I, I, I've, I've, I've kind of um, revisited the incident um, in my mind a few times and it is what spurred my own dark evolution, you know, but I was always trying to wonder as to how I was so terrified, but yet it was romantic, mm. you know, and I do think there was a bit of Stockholm. You know, um, and he was older. And he glamorous was older, in some ways. glamorous, and it was just the audacity. Mm. Just witnessed it, and it changed my life forever. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Carl Loco. 
So then within four years, you were quite heavily involved in gangs. Yeah. How did that come about? I was always afraid. I never stopped. I mean, mm. from that moment, I, I don't think I've even stopped being afraid since that moment, <laughs> you know? So it was an antidote to that fear. Myself and actually, funny enough, um, Ronnie Biggs' grandson, we were like, we were growing up in this area being bullied quite profusely. And what were you bullied for mainly, do you think? I mean, just for not being like a fixture in that microcosm, Mm. you know, Mm. not being a player, not being anyone of note, being very soft, just not being involved. I was Mm. bullied just not being involved Mm. ultimately. And I mean, I'd learned all the hacks. I know where to put the um, money on my person when my mother sends me to maybe go buy tomato puree from this shop, you know, cause I know that they're gonna pat me down here, here and here. I knew what junctions to avoid because they're gonna be there at that time. And then enough was enough. My mother's car was being broken into repeatedly. My brother who was older than me was actually getting a, a, a much more of a heat. His encounters were a bit more serious than the ones I was being exposed to mm-hmm. just because of the age difference. Mm-hmm. And my friend's dad was actually murdered over a PlayStation game in the area that we grew up in. And the young man that actually took his PlayStation game actually came to my house a few weeks before and took mine. And all I kept on thinking is that my dad could have been in, Mm. you know, and my dad would not Mm. stand for someone to come into his home and take his son's anything. Mm. I mean, I was like, I got to fix this. Mm. And I did. So how did you kind of make contact with the gang or how did they make contact for no, you? No, I made with my you? own gang. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, it's always been entrepreneurial. So always been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, How yeah, did you do that? I mean, just common cause. And were they people who hadn't been in gangs before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were all in that limbo of neither here nor there, feeling extremely displaced. The moment we banded together, we felt a bit better. How old were you then? Um, I think I was just on the border of 13, maybe. So did you carry weapons? As, as a child? Yes. I mean, yeah. But it must have also been incredibly dangerous. Did, did, you, did the other gangs come after you because you were trying to encroach on their turf? I mean, it's less around turf and just more around just being there. You know, there's a lot of trauma and trauma begets trauma. <laughs> In a lot of people's minds, offense is the best defense, you know, so you might see certain posturing, but it's mainly because everyone's afraid. Mm. As a result, yeah, I definitely been attacked on several occasions. I mean, I've got a Did- scar on my face, so it's, it's quite evident. But Was yeah. that with a knife? Yeah. Yeah. Did your character just change completely, do you think? No. You know, I... So you still felt very soft inside? Yeah. Very soft, very afraid, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I just put on a mask every day I left the home Mm. in a bid to exist. Eventually I couldn't take the mask off. It had informed a part of my character, but at my core, it was the same. And did your parents know what was going on? Because in a funny way, people- They didn't have the language for it at all. I mean, it wasn't a concept that they were familiar with coming from Ghana. You know, street gangs is not really prevalent over there at the time when they But they were... kind of thought it was in Britain either. Yeah, no, they didn't expect that at all. I mean, mm. they were blindsided, ill-equipped, 
didn't have the language. Because some people say that gangs, it's almost a replacement family. But in your case, you had a really loving family. So can you explain how, why it happened? I mean, there is... It's been referred to at times as initiators and imitators. You know, so initiators might actually belong to the minority, where they come from maybe a generic backdrop of absent father, maybe mother and the substance. And as a result, they are left to their own devices, you know, and navigating life with those <laughs> tensions, you know, even navigating life without those tensions at any age, but let alone at that age, you know, it's gonna pervert certain parts of you and maybe how you function. So as an initiator, like I would be in, around them, I would have proximity to them. Maybe they might see me coming home from school and might, you know, be the ones that was actually pressurizing me in a certain way. Mm. And then I would then be an imitator in order for me to be able to survive and mm. dare I say it, thrive in that environment. Did you get stopped regularly by the police? And in a way, could they have stepped in at any stage? Did you feel in any way they could have been more helpful? Us and them is never helpful. You know, us and them is never helpful. Splitting effect, even when it comes to when we're talking about diversity, inclusion, it all pieces in. We're dealing with the same problem. It's the same, it's the same beast, you know, and the police very much had an us and them approach to things. As a result, the community also had a us and them approach to things. So mm. there was no real platform for meaningful engagement, you know, to actually like interrogate some of the things that's literally causing, mm. you know, because a lot gangsterism and a lot of other subsects of our society, which are detrimental, are just byproducts mm. of certain core pains and core issues. You know, so, but yeah, no, the police, with that splitting effect, no, there's nothing that can be done. It takes a lot more empathy, genuine engagement, you know, to be able to actually reach someone. So did you have a sense that your life was kind of spiralling out of control and you didn't want that to happen? I mean, maybe on the subconscious level. Yeah. But it wasn't a conscious thing that I was running around seeking help for. Yeah. Just before your GCSEs, your best friend was killed. Yeah. How did that affect you? I mean, untold trauma. Mm. You know, you can on some level get a small snapshot into the effects of such things via atrocities that are happening week by week mm. in the city. And when you would see um, some of the imagery or you would hear of certain things via the internet, you know, you you feel anxious, right? Mm. You know, you have a, your knee-jerk response might be fear. You know, you might then think about your own loved ones, about your own kids and the danger that they might be exposed to and the potential of that happening to them. I mean, it just did exactly that, but with, on steroids, you know, when you're actually there to, you know, see someone pass on, so yeah. So were you actually there? Did you witness it? I mean, I definitely was there when he passed for sure. Yeah, there was a lot going on. It was a bit of a fight, so, and it was at night, so, but yeah. And we, was that the most frightening thing that happened to you? What was the sort of most... <laughs> I mean, we won't be able to get into that in a podcast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. Mm. We, we're, it's no secret, you know? Yeah. Did that one moment propel you to try and think again or not? 
No, I mean, you're just going to double down on what you know when you're scared, right? Okay. So, yeah, no. Did you want revenge? Um, Beyond that, I mean, it's just anger. Mm. Like, just more anger, more confusion, more fear. I wanted to feel more safe, for sure. You know, so, because it made me more afraid. Yeah. You know, more afraid for my life, for the life of my friends. And do you think there's a sense that the gangs are almost quite entrepreneurial? In a way, if you think about The Wire and Stringer Bell, it's yeah. an incredible business moment, yeah, in a not, way. Is that is that true? And did you have a kind of business? It's the, it's the reality, mm. you know, because essentially we all live in the same world, yeah? It might be the underworld, it might be the mainstream, but it's all the same world and the same principles is needed because everywhere you're dealing with human beings. And there is a a spectrum of personas and characteristics and to be able to engage effectively, you know, especially where human beings are allowed to maybe be their darker selves, you know, it is a level of training You know, I always say that the mainstream is easier than the underworld by Mm. far. You know, there's this misconception that a lot of the kids are doing it because they're lazy. Mm. You know, I mean, over there, there's a lot more to lose. Like I come here and the Mm. most I usually I can lose is the invoice. Mm. You know, like... So was it full on like 24 hours a day and did you make any money out of it? Nonstop. I mean... It's, it's like entrepreneurship. Yeah. Were you, you doing know? it at school too? And were you constantly thinking about it? Oh, in terms of the involvement in gang? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's nonstop. But I am obsessive. <laughs> I do, I've mm. got to be honest. I don't know whether that's because of the, or because it's me. Mm. Anything I'm doing, I am absolutely obsessive. So were you making money? At that time, no, mm. no. But it was, so the entrepreneurialism was about the sort of leadership almost of the yeah, group. Yeah, it was that piece, mm. you know. And I mean, it all def- depends on what you define as money as well. Mm. Yeah, I was able to get by. You know, you'd make more than you would at a menial job, mm. you know, so, yeah. And then you met Pastor Mimi Ashton. Yeah. What, what, her son was also in a gang. What kind of influence did she have then on you? I mean, it was that piece around conversationally, she would allow me to explore, you know, what I had already experienced. And how did you meet her? She actually was the mother of a friend of mine. We went to the same primary school. Our parents knew each other, um, both of Ghanaian heritage, you know, and she actually used to run tutoring on the weekends, on Saturday mornings. And my mother would take me there for numeracy and literacy. And I mean, she was engaging with me probably from the age of like four. That was Auntie Mimi. So how did she kind of persuade you to try and stop the gang life? If I'm being honest, she appealed to my ambitions. She's a, more, a remarkable woman. She knows it's, it's not one size fits all. You know, it's case by case. And in my case, she told me that you have Brixton in an unofficial way, but maybe you could have Britain. In an official way. In an official way, yeah. yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah. I have some of that. Yeah. And during the time you were actually shot outside her house and the bullet went through her door, Yeah. how did she respond to that? I mean, in panic. <laughs> it's like, yeah, in absolute panic. You know, and by this time I had already denounced my involvement in everything, you know, 
Um, but yeah, just an absolute shock horror, you know, and then to put your head down on your pillow that night or even the nights to follow and to have some semblance of peace, you know, is pretty hard to, you know, <laughs> to broker. And did you tell your parents at any time? Oh, my mother was in the house at the time. Right. Yeah. They were having tea in the kitchen. So she must have, Pastor Mimi and your mother, actually, they must have been incredibly brave because it's quite a dangerous thing to try and extract children I from I mean, you're brave kids. when you have to be. Yeah. You know, it's the same concept I have um, today. My whole piece, which is Pastor Mimi's stance, if the mission is greater than the threat, then <laughs> you just got to mm. rise to the occasion, mm. you know? Um, and that's always been the case. You know, even with, I, I almost say it's, it's a shame that partially the hostilities of the current entrepreneurial ecosystem towards black entrepreneurs, I draw a lot of my resilience from the fact that, you know, I've been in environments that have been equally as hostile. Mm. It's just that perseverance and the fact that the mission is greater than the threat. You just got to just crack on. Mm. And it's interesting yeah. that they were the women. So the older women were the ones that were stepping in. Were there younger women in the gangs as well or not? How, how did the women fit in? I mean, do you know, it's, it's interesting because the whole, um, the whole, let's just refer to it as a, the gang sphere. It's, it's one where it's extremely nuanced, you know? So you might be on the peripheral, you might be right in the mix, you might be um, just guilty by association, you know? So the spectrum is quite vast, mm. you know? So there are some that would have been completely involved, full baptism, and there's others that just because their best friend was involved or was murdered or whatever issue, or they have a sibling, you know, just because they live in the area, you know, you're going to have some level of interaction with it. Yeah, I mean, there's no real kind of way to say it. But I mean, yeah, there was some involvement in terms of some of the younger ladies as well. And when you tried to stop that gang life, did did people get angry? Did people try to drag you back? No, no, what happened? No. That's for the, yeah, no, not at all. That's not, I was quite fortunate. I was top boy of my estate to some degree, you know. So by the time I was throwing it in, Maybe some didn't want me to hiss at them. And then there was the disbelief that I was actually going to stick at it. How old were you? You know, um, I was about maybe 19, 20. So in a way, they were quite pleased because you were off the out of no, the picture. No, no, they weren't pleased. I mean, misery likes company, you know? So, like everyone are trying to band together and navigate. I don't think they were pleased, mm. but they understood. And I was quite clear. You know, I had conversations with them all. And I was like, listen, my mother begged me I didn't stop. Even when things was going on, I never stopped, but I just don't believe in it. So mm. I can't be here. And what did your dad say? My dad, my dad's, a, my dad's a silent man. He speaks a lot with no words, you know? Right. So he's told me everything and nothing called at the same time, mm. you know? But me and my dad, we have a great relationship. He's a good guy. He, he actually showed me what like real, real masculinity is, you know, in a way where he, he loved on and doted on us showed us a certain level of affection, always encouraged me, never made me feel less than. But he must have been really worried at some stages about you. I'm sure. I mean, children are selfish, mm. right? <laughs> Short-sighted. I wasn't really 
thinking of them at that time there. Yeah, you live and learn. And thank God we've been able to live enough to learn. But in a way, do you feel that your experience shows it is possible to turn children's lives around or young people's Completely. lives? Completely. Do you worry that too many are kind of written off? It's I mean, stereotyped. It's or... a downright shame. You know, there are so many, like I refer to it as the hidden alumni. Yeah? The hidden alumni, actually, <laughs> it came about when... I was at a gala and it was in a listed building. I think it was banquet house. And then some farmer was commissioning the evening. We had the right comedian on stage. We had the right lots donated. You know, the auction was in full flow. We had a piece of art that was donated by a, a, a brilliant artist and it got stuck in time. It wasn't fetching what it needed to fetch. I went on stage, I pulled a stunt. It was on stage, off script, it landed. It helped to unlock that auction piece. And then literally we ended up fetching a, a lot of money off of that one piece. I came to sit back on my table and the guy next to me, I could tell you he was aching to ask me a question, aching to say something. And I literally put my hand on him, which, on his hand. Yeah, which I mean, carousel seat and everyone in their tuxedos, mine rented, but I mean, <laughs> in there nonetheless. And I was like, you know, there's no such thing as a silly question because questions are answers masters. So go for it. And then he sighed out and he's like, there's no way I can ask. And I'm like, you must ask. And he just asked me, is there more of you? And at first the question went clean over my head. I was like, what are you talking about? Is there more? It's like, oh, what you mean more with ability? <laughs> what? Like more with talent. And I'm like, oh my days, there's a whole lot more. He said, no. I said, yeah, there's a lot more. And he's like, I've been led to believe that meritocracy exists and that we are in the position we are because of our ability and that has allowed the creme to rise to the top and society and the system is working fairly and this is like a fact, but now my whole, that whole theory is under question. His literal words, he said, I had more talent in my little finger than his board did in their entire body. Mm -hmm. And he was like, how can this, they can't be. And I was like, yeah, no, we exist. We're just a part of the hidden alumni. Okay. Hidden alumni could be pregnant as at 15, pulled herself by the bootstraps, went, finished education, went to maybe not a purple brick university, but went to university, got her two one, cracked on and got a decent job in the city, I will attest that her two one is more than her counterparts first mm. from maybe an institution that we might all herald and esteem. Um, and I would attest also to say that she has a lived experience. And I would attest to actually say, even though she might be on the same floor as her counterpart, she's had to climb the north face of the mountain. Mm. And I've been an adventurer, I've climbed mountains when someone else climbed the north face of the mountain, I'm at the summit where we clap for them. I mean, we've literally just climbed the same mountain. Mm -hmm. I mean, the altitude is thin yeah. up there. I mean, it's taken us maybe a day or two days to get up there, you know? And when we see someone coming up the north face, we clap because there is a big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, it just takes a lot more, it's a lot more perilous. I mean, it gets the least light. 
you know, and that is what I've been attesting for for a long while. Mm. And um, how can you get a sense that you, there is another route up? How can you help people find another route or make sure that everyone's going the easier route up? How do you do that? Is it just education or is it I mean, we need more? to encourage everyone to come up, mm. right? And you won't even know a summit exists or want to attempt to summit if you don't see yourself represented there. You know, you're just not going to have that, like, the, where's the inkling going to come from, you know? If you don't see yourself in that position, no one that looks like you, no one that came from where you come, you've come from, no one that sounds like you, no one that has your orientation there, no one that has your disability there, why are you going to try to climb the mountain to mm. get there, mm. you know? So we just need more representation. We need more inclusion. And we need to do it knowing that the more we do that, the hidden alumni are going to bring with them what is currently not within our boardrooms. It's not within our management teams. You know, it's not within the directorships. And then as a result, we're going to add, you know, and it's back to this beautiful reef fire over the lifeless rock piece. And you've also worked as a mentor for kids who are coming out of gangs. Yeah. How, what do you think explains that knife crime epidemic that we're seeing at the moment? Hopelessness. Yeah. I'll never forget the first time I started to get in the car and put on a seatbelt. I know it sounds unrelated, but it was a big shift in me. It's like I got something to live mm. for. When you believe you are in a place where you're not able to surmount what is the seemingly insurmountable, there is a level of hopelessness and hopelessness can create a flurry of things. You know, it can allow those that wouldn't necessarily want to, you know, feel like they might have to subscribe to that, which is ultimately detrimental. I mean, what a state of play that there are those that would subscribe to gangsterism in a city as full as ours. You know, it actually shows just how much of a headwind they are experiencing, they are feeling, they are seeing. I mean, ultimately, everyone wants to thrive. No one wants to lose. No one enters a game and says, yeah, I want to lose. I want to be the loser today. But there's a lot of loss going on. And there are a lot of children who've dropped out of school. And there is that sense that actually is seen as sort of almost laziness or mental health issues or no one's really drilling down into it. Do you yeah. feel that after the pandemic, that has just been a massive loss that we really do need to address now that that that's I mean, post um covid yeah so yeah. Th there's that sense that that no one's really grappled with it have they they've tried but no one's really bothering to look at what's going on now yeah i, I mean that's a huge shame you know and i get it it's an intimidating situation because we know it is so sophisticated in reality even though someone might blurt from this corner, ah, oh, I'm stiffer sentences. You know, another might blurt from this corner, say, um, blame the parents. You know, we all know deep down, it's a lot more layered. Mm -hmm. It's multidimensional, you know, and the one piece that we can all agree on is that it is a complete robbery. And children are the most vulnerable and even a reflection from the animal kingdom. You know, those that are older, they protect, they cover, you know, and there is just a lack of that covering. There's a lack of that empathy. 
And we know that everything has been expedited since COVID. I mean, even the overall digitization of things, our overall affinity to tech, the content production, you know, what our young people are being privy to, what they're getting their eyeballs on. We know it's all gone unchecked. These are companies created by adults, governments, you know, run by adults, you know, that have let these things go on. And then now that the young people are suffering immensely, everyone's now trying to blame, you know, elements of it, which is fruit rather than root, you know? So what we do need to do is really put together a, a, like a real task force of sorts and actually understand that it is multi-layered, it is multi-dimensional, it is multifaceted, it's nuanced. We need to be able to approach it from many different angles. There is just not one fix. And you've met Prince Harry. How did that happen? <laughs> I mean, um, I got raptured into the 0.1% of London about over, just over a decade ago, you know? So, I mean, it's a, 0.1 is very small, you know? So you tend to have the proximity are to him. Yeah, you know? So, yeah, no, but I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've worked with um, his cousins. And you were at his wedding to Meghan, weren't I you? Was, what was that yeah. like? That was, that Who was- Who were you a... sitting next to? <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting next to my ex-wife at the time, oh, actually. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she was pregnant with our son. But yeah, no, it was a destiny moment. You know, it felt like that for myself and it felt like that for those that were in the room, primarily those that were being wedded and then also the nation. It just felt like something that wouldn't happen. And it's happened, you know? So, I mean, it, it felt like an unfrozen moment some change. But it's really being an entrepreneur that kind of feeds your soul now, isn't it? Rather oh, than the 0.1%, all the parties, completely. or completely. the DJs, it's, it, isn't it? So, because it's, why? The pro- it's, it's, it's the problem solving. Mm. Problem solving in itself on a day-to-day is extremely stimulating. I mean, just for me, like I'm always complaining, oh, there's another fire to put out. But to be honest, I love it. <laughs> I've got to be honest. You know, I've, I've gotten used to a certain intensity and this really did bring it, <laughs> I gotta be honest. Like raising money, mm. pooling capital. I mean, as a legitimate fund in the United Kingdom, one of the most financially stringent <laughs> places on planet earth, it was no small feat, but it basically exposed every fiber of my kind of being, you know, to be able to say that, you know, we're going to get this done, you know, and that of the teams. So no, I I love entrepreneurialism. And then plus, we get to do things that stimulate us and will stimulate change. Yeah, it's a no brainer. Do you think you'd rather be rich or happy or safe? I think happiness is overrated. I feel as if happiness is odd because sometimes I'm happy to do the wrong things, you know? I'm happy, (laughs) I'm happy to be lazy, you know? I'm happy to flip the bird at that person because they've annoyed me in the car. Like, I'm happy to do certain things that, and I mean, if we're just pursuing happiness, for me, it's more around purpose, Mm -hmm. you know? And with the purpose piece, the byproduct is money. Not all the time, but for me, it's been the case. You know, when I was at campaigning and advocating, for a fair and more inclusive business ecosystem. Initially, I was just doing that purely because I'm like, you guys need to let us in. I'm getting young people off of the street 
and then they're in this limbo. They're not getting let in because they don't look like this. They've come from here. They have maybe not got your certain kind of like pieces around the edges. I'm like, you just need to open the door. So I went around to do that. And then before I knew it, I got into the world of like advisory, consultancy, corporate speaking. And then there was my own social mobility. You know, I was earning like a footballer, <laughs> like, you know? And literally I was like, oh, didn't even see yeah. that that was going to be the case. And it was purpose. And now when you look at some of that sort of 0.1%, do you think that they're in some ways as damaged often? So say someone like Prince Harris had as difficult a childhood in some ways as you had, that that there's a sense that it doesn't really matter where you come from often that you hadn't realised before. I went uptown on a mercenary level to get resources to bring downtown. I've always said it, I've never hidden that. I literally left my estate, left my borough hmm. in a bid to get resources because we needed it. The rooms I would enter at that time my suspicion, you know, was that they had webbed feet, that when you cut them, they bleed green. These are alien entities. I always attest, and I will say it now, I'll say it forever, we all have more in common than difference. It's just a fact. I went there and met people that were scared, <laughs> met people that had hope, met people that wanted to be loved met people that gave love. It's human everywhere. Mm. And that's the piece. I can't help but to see it that way. I've got too much of an eclectic friendship group. I've done way too much social commuting. You know, I've done too much traveling to believe that humans aren't human everywhere. Does that you know? apply to Prince Harry? Do you think that sense of completely, vulnerability? Completely, mm. completely, you know? He's human, right? Mm. Yeah. And thinking back to yourself when you were 12 and you were playing football, mm-hmm. What do you wish you'd known then that you know now? For one, I'm not one that, I don't have many regrets. I don't believe in that. I feel as if it takes the strength away that you need for tomorrow. And if you're not careful, you'll end up worrying yourself out of better tomorrows and better morals. If I did have one piece of advice, it would probably be what I advised my team at the beginning of building Black Seed. And that is, I want everyone to operate, to respond, to react like old, rich, white, heterosexual men. <laughs> That's how we got this thing done. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest today, Carl Loco. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.